Let me ask you a question as we're uh, ending this series called 2020. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in love? I mean, think back to that first moment when you just, you had the heart. Like that heart just warmed up and you had that feeling. Some of the married couples in the room going, I don't remember what you're talking about, but I'm, I'm, I'm kidding, I kid. We all love each other and our spouses love us equally. But remember back to what it felt like. Remember what it felt like to, to fall in love that very first time. Was it kind of like that moment in a movie where you maybe kissed him or kissed her and you walked down the the front of their steps at their house and you went skipping in the street and there was music playing and, you know, Cupid has struck you? Or was it terrible? Was it just like that moment where it's like, I'm in love, right? Like I'm, I'm kind of, what, what does this mean for the rest of my life? Or was maybe, depending on your age, was your, was your first thought, man, my parents are going to kill me because I love this person. I'm doing whatever I have to for this person. I don't remember that moment that I fell in love with Amy. I know I'm a terrible human being. I don't remember the specific moment. What I do remember, though, is the first time that I met her. So I had recently gotten back from college because I was such an amazing student. My dad said, you're not going back the second semester. You're going to stay at home. And so I came home and I walk into, at that time, was a college and like high school youth group night. It was kind of a combined night of worship. And my dad was the youth pastor and I walk in and I sit down and a friend of mine kind of nudges me and says, hey, hey, there's this girl over there and she's checking you out. And I'm like, oh yeah, who's this, right? And of course her story might be a little different, but mine's the correct one. And so I begin to notice that she's noticing me, and so I'm noticing her, and you know how that goes. And after the church service, I was Mr. Cool, right? I had to play it cool, so I took a few minutes. I let her, we, we kind of go, we had a gym right below where we met, and so everyone would kind of hang out and play basketball, and there was some, some pews kind of sitting aside of it, kind of like chairs where you go and hang out. And she was hanging out there, so I took a few minutes to kind of casually stroll down there, and I I go to sit on a pew, and I kind of put my arm near her, not around her, because that'd be weird, because it's the first time I don't even know her name yet, and I'm like, hey, girl, what's your number, right? And it was the sleaziest thing you could do, and somehow, some way, it worked. Somehow, some way, I got the digits, and from then on, she changed my life radically, and it was an amazing friendship that we began uh, for, for many months, actually, we began to talk on the phone for hours, and years later, I found out she hated talking on the phone, but somehow, this gorgeous face got it, hap- got it to happen, and so we spoke, and uh, we, we later began dating, and y'all know the story now, but even today, as I prepare sermons, she is someone that I go to, and I say, hey, what do you think about this line? What do you think about this? And, and we... She greatly impacts my life. The, the closer that we grow, the more impact that she has on me, and, and hopefully vice versa. Now, because of that great impact, what you need to know is that no one can hurt me like she can hurt me. No one can cheer me up like she can cheer me up. 
cheer me up. The place that she holds in my life is one like no other, so to speak. But she has literally shaped, in many ways, my, my, my theology. She has shaped the way I see people. She has shaped the way I love. She has certainly shaped the way I communicate. And y'all should know what I'm talking about. You've probably had that person in your life at some point where they had such a prominent place in your life that you began to see changes, whether they were good or bad. You began to see changes in your life because of the place that they held in your life. And this is what I want to speak about this, this morning, that the person or persons who you hold in the highest esteem will have the most powerful influence on your life. Let me say that again. The person or persons who you hold in the highest esteem will have the most powerful influence on your life. So we've been in the chapter of Mark chapter 12 for the last several weeks, and we're going to be continuing there one more week today. And we're going to read a passage that we read last week, but what I want to highlight is just one sentence, really one phrase from that place. And I want us to land the plane this morning on Mark chapter 12. So if you have your scriptures, we're going to be Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. And we're going to talk about what it means for someone to hold a place in our life that impacts everything else. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Remember, we spoke about that last week. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no one other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. He said, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Of God. If you've been tracking with us over the past several weeks, we, 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 week one we talked about taking intentional action and we saw how through scripture that God has called you and I to take intentional actions. Not to just merely have good intentions, but to take actions off of those intentions. And then we looked at how we need to love God. And everything that we do in this life, everything that is good comes from that idea and that place of loving God. And then last week we saw that just as equally as important it is to love God, we are to love people. And then today we end this passage and it says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus is speaking to the scribe and notice that Jesus does not affirm that the scribe is in the kingdom of God. The scribe gives him a correct answer. And if you'll think back to Mark chapter 12, Jesus is approached by several different people. I mean, he's probably approached by about eight different people. And on eight different occasions, he does not give these people any answer whatsoever. But somehow, some way, this scribe approaches him with a question, and he answers this person's question 
And yet at the end of the answer, he says, yeah, you get it, but you are not far from the kingdom of God. And that to me, when I read that, it struck me, okay, what A, is the kingdom of God? And then what B, does it take to be in the kingdom? Like, if you look at this scribe's answer, it's a pretty solid answer. I mean, he kind of understands what it means to follow God, and yet God himself, incarnate, looks back at this scribe and says, you are not far from the kingdom. So what is the kingdom of God? That's the first part that I want to answer today. And it's a pretty simple thing, but if we look at the breakdown of kingdom of God, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are used synonymously throughout Scripture. And combined, they're used about 80 different times in the New Testament. Jesus uses them the most, and he says kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. But what is the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and at different other times, he says, in order to be in the kingdom of God, you must do X, Y, Z. And he refers to this kingdom so often in Scripture. But yet, if we as Christ followers leave this place, go to lunch, and, and someone asks you, hey, what did the pastor preach about today? You say, oh, the kingdom of God. And they replied to you saying, what is the kingdom of God? What would your answer be? I mean, that's a pretty weird thing. Like, when I think about kingdom of God, what, what does that mean? And so I, I want to break it down very quickly, and, and first to say that it is complex while simultaneously not being complex at all. So if we look at the term kingdom, that implies that there is a king who is sovereign over something. That's exactly what kingdom implies. That's kind of what it means. You break down, you look at this kingdom idea. In Greek, it's the word basilia, and it indicates royal sovereignty of monarchy, meaning there's one leader in the functional sense and the realm or the specific in the geographical sense. So what that basically means in English is that what a kingdom has is it has one leader who rules over it both in function... And he, this person rules over it in geography as well. So it's not only a physical sense, which we would think of. I think most of us, when we hear kingdom, I, I, at least I do, I think of like the UK. I think of the queen and the king. And I think of that, that functionality. They have a geographical land that they govern. They lord over, so to speak. But there's also a functional sense that... If I am a Briton and I leave that geographical land, am I still a Briton? Absolutely. Do I still report to the kingdom of Britain? Absolutely I do. So there's not only a geographical sense, but there's the, this idea that the kingdom is something that reigns over all of its people, and so does that king. Scripture makes it very clear in Exodus 19 and 1 Peter and in several other places that what God has called of his people is to be a set apart people. They are not like every single person in this world. They are different. They have been redeemed, chosen, adopted, and they are a royal priesthood that Peter says is set apart. They are the kingdom of of God. So, the kingdom of God is both 
where God's people both spiritually and eventually physical reside. Meaning, if you are a member of God's kingdom, you spiritually reside in God's kingdom. And right now, as we live in this fallen world, we are all just people who live on earth. But eventually what will happen, God will redeem all things and his people, his sovereign nation will then geographically reside in his kingdom. I hope that makes sense and I hope you kind of can wrap your brain around that idea because on one hand, like I said, it is complex, but on the other hand, it's, it's really not. When you become a Christ follower, you are put into the spiritual kingdom of God. But obviously, you and I still live where? Here. And one day, we will geographically reside with the Lord. But what does all this have to do with being in the kingdom of God? Let's go back to the scribe and Jesus' conversation. So the scribe has a lot of knowledge. And he touts this knowledge to Jesus. And Jesus' response back to this scribe is that you are not far from the kingdom. So what was the scribe missing? And I believe what the scribe was missing is heart. What he was missing was the investment. See, the scribe knew what it meant to follow God. He knew that you were to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you were to love people or love your neighbor as yourself. But yet, what did the scribe do with that knowledge? See, just because someone understands what it takes to be a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that they're doing it. They have to invest their lives into Jesus. I was talking with our leadership team, and I was discussing this idea of investment. And many of them came back, well, invest just seems so, you know, like money. There's like a, a monetary thing to it. And I said, well, yeah, if you, I mean, if you look up the word investment in, in the dictionary, the first definition certainly has a lot to do with money. But what I believe is a more appropriate, more direct, and more accurate definition of investment is actually the second definition of investment. It, it says to provide or endow someone or something with a particular quality or attribute. To provide or endow someone or something with something else. So when I say that what God is requiring of you and I to be in the kingdom is for us to invest. What God is requiring of you and I is to give ourselves to Him. Not just what I know about Him. Not just what I feel about Him or what I think about Him. He is requiring you to give everything. To fully invest. To be at the poker table and say, I'm all in. That's what Jesus is requiring. And he looks at this scribe and he says, I know that you know these things, but are you investing into the kingdom of God? So, what does it take for us to invest in the kingdom of God? What, what would it take for you sitting in that seat this morning to invest in the kingdom of God? Of God. I've been thinking about this sermon 
for months now. Not that that's going to make a better sermon or not. But I've certainly been thinking about this idea of what does it mean to invest in the kingdom of God and what would it take for you and I to do it. And I think the first thing is that we have to count the cost. We have to count the cost. Here's what I mean by that. I I was in youth ministry for about 10 years. I grew up in ministry with my dad, and because of that opportunity with him and then being able to lead youth from such a young age, I was afforded the opportunity to go to a lot of camps and conferences. And I can remember teaching at one conference. It was kind of like a revival setting, and they had done this conference year after year after year, and it was a room of a couple of hundred kids. And I go to meet with this, uh, I guess, the leader of the conference, and it's, we're getting ready for the last session, and the, the leader walks up to me and says, all right, Chris, it's, a, it's an important day. It, it's the last day. It's a day where we kind of, you know, put the nail in the coffin, so to speak. We, we land the plane well. And he all but said, I'm going to need some souls this morning. I mean, he, he kind of got to that place. And if, if you don't know what I mean, what he's saying is, I'm going to need some kids to walk down front and give their life to Jesus. And I looked back at him at one point and I said, well, you got the wrong guy. And he goes, what? I said, look, man, I am all for kids coming down front. I'm all for this entire room giving their life to Jesus. But here's kind of how I see things. I don't see this stage or this production that we're doing as an opportunity to somehow coerce these students into making an emotional decision. Because here's what I know about what it means to follow Jesus. It's not something that I would do on a whim. It's not something that I would just try to build, you know, the band up and the speaker's just getting in it and I need you to come down front and give your life to Jesus, right? And then the whole band breaks out and praise the fire, right? Like, it's that moment. Like, those are good moments, but here's what I don't want to happen. If that is the only thing that drew you to Jesus, maybe you gave your life to the band and not to Jesus. Because here is what I know. Having gone to conferences, having been to camps, we have an algorithm. We have an occasion, an equation, so to speak. There's this thing. When you build a camp, let's say you got four nights. Well, night four, that's the night. Like you have been building up to this moment. You've been telling the band, hey, it's coming, right? You get the speaker up there. He's ready to roll. I was actually at a conference one time. There's about 2,000 male student athletes in a room. They got this speaker up on the stage, and he had an amazing testimony. And he gets up there in front of all these student athletes, and he starts talking about his cocaine addiction and all of the you know, things in his life, the sexual deviancies and all this. And then Jesus came, and he went from death to life in a heartbeat, and everything was changed. I mean, it was a powerful testimony. And then the band starts coming up there, and they start padding on the heartstrings. We're all kind of leaning in. It's this nice moment. Okay, okay, I hear you. And then he gets to his closing. Every eye closed, every head bowed. He goes through the, the, the moment of trying to get people to pray to receive Christ. And he says, amen. And the band's playing. Nobody's moving. 
And he stands up in front of this group of several hundred kids. I mean, I think it was about 2,000 kids in this room. All male, high school, student athletes. And he says, if you ain't man enough to walk down this aisle, you ain't man enough to give your life to Jesus. You got to be a man to give your life to Jesus. You got to do it. You got to be a man. Now, if you can imagine being a 16 or 17-year-old boy, and some dude who's jacked, right, starts challenging your manhood to come give your life to Jesus, what, what are you going to do? And then there's the domino effect, where one kid comes down and they're bawling, like they're just <laughs> like ugly crying, right? And maybe it's a God moment. They're having this amazing time with the Lord. But here's what happens. Those emotions begin to manipulate the other kids in the room. And we use these moments, and please, please, please do not hear me say that I don't believe in emotions, and I think they're bad, I think they're good. I think lights are good, I think music's good, I think God gave us creativity. He is the most creative being ever. Look outside, it's beautiful. But, you give your life to a light, to a singer, to a preacher, that don't mean anything. Did you give your life to Jesus? Have you counted the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. And let me tell you why I hold this belief. Because Jesus did not sugarcoat what it means to follow him. He did not make it look easy. In Luke chapter 14, verse 25, he's got a lot of people coming to him. Here's what Jesus says. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. Hate your own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And the band cranked up and they're saying, come on, make an emotional decision. That to me was a pretty clear cut and dry case where Jesus said, hey, there's a lot of people out here who think I'm famous. You want to be around me? You want to touch me? You want to you you know who Jesus is? Here's who Jesus is. Count the cost. And then he says, go all in. That's the second thing we have to do in order to invest into the kingdom of God. We've got to count the cost, and then we've got to go all in. Matthew 16, 20, 25 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Think back to a time when you invested everything you had into something. I mean, everything you had. I, I know many of you out there are businessmen. There was a deal coming up. You, shot, you thought it was a sure thing. You put your 
house on the line, you put this business on the line, and you invested everything that you had. Maybe it was school. Maybe some of you invested everything you had in being an amazing student. And you studied, and you studied for this test, or you studied for this thing or that thing. Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe you went all in for a relationship or a sport, whatever it is. How did it turn out? See, I think some of us have this idea that depending on our circumstances, maybe we went all in for something and it didn't work out, and so we're, we're very tentative to go all in on something because we've been hurt, we've been damaged. Some of us have put all into something and, it, and it's worked out, and so we're more prone to do that over and over again, but we're still hesitant. We have to make sure that one plus one equals two and that that contract looks the right way or this thing does the right deal and that, that thing goes the way we want it to. And here's what I would tell you this morning, that investing into God is not a gamble. He comes back full return. He is not like any other investment you've ever had in your entire life. He is a sure thing. It's nothing like you could understand in this world. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Ephesians 3.20 says we can do immeasurably more in Him. Romans says we are more than conquerors in Christ. So when I'm telling you to go all in, I'm not saying, hey, take a gamble that this is the right answer. Heaven and hell exist. Jesus will be enthroned at the right hand of the Father. He will redeem all things. I'm telling you, that's fact. This is the Word of God. And if you want to study how inerrant it is, you should. You should go get your seminary degree and you should find out how many hundreds of thousands of millions of people have looked into the inerrancy of this thing right here. And when atheists walk up to you and they say, oh, well, there's some things that don't really line up, you go, show it to me. Because they're wrong. They're flat wrong. They don't have enough education. They've been blinded by Satan. They have no clue. And I'm telling you, I know I might sound like that traditional like Southern Baptist preacher right now, but I'm telling you, this does not come back null and void. It is the investment of a lifetime, literally. Count the cost and invest everything you have into God. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but He who lives in me. I'm not telling you to bet on yourself. I'm telling you to bet on Jesus. Because He is a sure thing. It's not leaning on your own understanding, but it's trusting. It's in Him. It's serving for Him. It's loving for Him. It's tithing for Him. It's raising your kids to know and love Him. It's supporting missions and missionaries for Him. It's making disciples. It's supporting disaster relief. It's sending a kid to camp. It's trusting Him with all of your finances. It's being involved at church for Him. It's having faith that His purposes are greater in the midst of disease, in the greater in the midst of turmoil or war or loss. He is everything. And when we have that sort of investment, when we count the cost and we go all in, we will see the wave of God in our life, in our friend's life, in our family's life, in this nation and in this world. But we cannot do it going halfway in. You can't be lukewarm. He says it in Revelation 7, the church at Laodicea was neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm and he spit them out of their mouth. 
he does not want you to kind of, uh, you know, that cold bath, you kind of, I don't know about all this. No. Go all in. Let me ask you this. Is God big enough for you to invest in him? To completely give yourself to him? I saw an illustration recently, about four months ago, from a pastor named Louis Giglio. And it fits what we're talking about this morning. Let me ask you a question. How big is your view of God? How big is your view of the gospel? See, if this baptismal pool full of water represented your heart, it represented all you were, and right now it's, it's contained because you haven't invested in anything. And this is kind of who you are. You just kind of sit. You go through work. You go through life. And this is just where you are. And then I had a pebble. This pebble represents your view of God. And this, this is how big you think God is. This is how big you think his gospel is. That's how big the wave he's going to make in your life. Maybe you've grown up in the church. Maybe you've heard a lot of things about Jesus. Maybe you know, like the scribe, what it means to love God and love people. But you're kind of holding back. You're kind of, you're a little weary. That's how big God is in your life. Maybe you are hurt. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe God didn't come through when you wanted him to. And so you pulled back some of that trust. You pulled back some of that openness. You said, God, I'm, I'm broken. You weren't there. You weren't there. This is all you get. I've seen turmoil, I've seen loss, I've seen war. God, I, I'm working on it. I'm, I'm, I'm working to trust you. But right now, this, this is all I've got. It's all I've got. And we hold this view of God, author, creator, heaven and earth, sent his son to come, die for you even when you weren't even a thought in your mother's eye. And we look at God and we say, yeah, I can kind of believe you created everything. There might be a little evolution in there somewhere. Maybe there's more roads to heaven than, than just your son. I, I don't know. I struggle. There's, there's so much coming at me. I, I just can't trust. And then we wonder why our children, why our communities aren't safe. Because we hold a view of God to where He's not protecting us. He can't change your neighbor. He can't impact that person who came from loss, who knows no better. He can't 
reach those people. Because that's how big he is. What would happen? What would happen if we began to have a different view of God? What would happen if we began, unlike the scribe, with just knowledge? What would happen if we looked at God and said, man, if you created everything, if you sent your son for me before I was ever here, maybe you are big. Maybe then, when I hold that view, it's not just some small investment. It's everything I have. And maybe when I give him everything I have, maybe we'll begin to see things change. Maybe we'll begin to see our world look more like the kingdom of God. Maybe that small amount of time that you had to give to your neighbor or to your church or that small tithe that you thought was nothing, God might increase. Maybe that problem child you have, maybe when you begin to believe that God is big enough to trust in Him, to lean on His ways, His understanding and not yours and not some psychology book alone, but on God, maybe then will He make an impact greater than we could ever imagine second row you might get wet it's coming because here's the deal when we invest into a God who is big and he is grand the impact that he has in our life will not stay in the tub it will come out it will impact those that don't want to get wet it's gonna happen that's how big he is what if we had a God-sized view of Him and His gospel? What if? What if God was everything? 